0: Um, welcome everybody. Uh, thank you for your interest and um, your attendance to this event on government contracting of welfare services to NGOs in China. My name is Regina and Huto Martinez and I will be chairing this first session. We are very excited, excited. We have a week-long program of events that marks the culmination of a three-year um, research project of, on government contracting of services to NGOs in China. Um, which has been funded by the uh, Economic and Social Research Council here in the UK. To give you a bit of a background to the research, um, it aimed at examining government contracting of welfare services to NGOs to understand questions around legislative and policy changes, how these were designed and introduced, what incentives do local governments have to embrace the policy and how the policy affects state to society, state NGO relations. What is working well, uh, what is not working well? Can we identify good practices? Uh, And overall, how does contracting to NGOs, uh, what does it tell us about welfare reform in China and about authoritarianism more generally? We've carried out uh, research on on five different locations in China and focused on three different sectors, namely children with disabilities, uh, people living with HIV AIDS and migrants. conducted extensive research on laws, policies, and regulations, secondary research, and we've conducted over 120 qualitative interviews for which we're grateful to the interviewees and participants for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. The project was, uh, has been uh, led by Professor Jude Howell here at the LSE and has as co-investigators Professor Xiao Yang Chang from Beijing Normal University in China and Professor Karen Fisher from University of New South Wales in Australia. Uh, in the team, we also have uh, Yu Jie from Beijing Normal University, Dr. Uh, Yuan Chu from, U- uh, from the LSE, and myself from the LSE as well. Um, today, in this first session, we open with Professor Jude Howell's paper on why and how contracting looks different under authoritarianism. Jude needs no introduction really she, uh, her work on civil society in China has led the field and has inspired many of us to uh, actually work on these issues. She's professor in international development at the LSE and has also worked on questions of, on governance, gender, labor relations, accountability of NGOs, and with great impact as well on securitization of aid and counterterrorism after the war on terror. She will be presenting for 15 minutes, around 15 minutes, and then I will open for Q and A to give you a bit of the Zoom etiquette. Uh, the session is being recorded and it will be turned into a podcast. So be aware for the Q and A and for your uh, opening your camera on if you're comfortable with that. Um, p- please keep your microphones off. I've muted everybody, but I will let you unmute you to to let you pose your question if you use the raise hand function here in the bottom of the screen and you can also use the chat and chat function and I will be combining raise hand and chat function questions. Okay, so without further ado, let's hear from Jude on the question on why and how contracting looks different under authoritarianism. We can't hear you, Jude. I'll
1: try, I'll press my. Yeah, okay, is that clear now? Yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much, Regina, for that introduction. And I will be looking at why and how does contracting look different under authoritarianism? What is it about an authoritarian regime that makes contracting? of welfare services to NGOs look different to in a liberal democratic regime. So first let me just say what is an authoritarian regime. So an authoritarian regime is one where power um, is invested in a single leader or a dominant party and um, is sustained and kept in place through repressive security agencies and other means as well. There are many different types Of authoritarian regimes, there are military regimes, there are dictatorships, there are theocratic regimes and so on, and there are also socialist, -socialist, post-socialist authoritarian regimes. Now some of the key features of an authoritarian regime uh, is the lack of of multi-party competitive elections which has implications for succession and legitimacy, Um, lack of transparency and openness, a rather constrained civil societies, government-controlled media, and also um, very constrained civil and political rights. And these things begin to matter when we get to contracting. Uh, So how is it that uh, an authoritarian regime might approach contracting? How might it look differently? I'm going to think about this for a bit before going into the case of China. So if we take a post-socialist authoritarian regime, of course the starting point is very different to the starting point and context within which um, many liberal democratic regimes approached the contracting of welfare uh, several decades ago. Um, in a post-socialist regime, the regime is merging out of a state-planned economic system. So there is likely to be a vacuum of non-state institutions that are readily available to take on the contracting of welfare services. That's something we might expect. So that would mean we would expect the government to have to support, to have to grow, for example, an NGO sector that is readily available and sufficiently large in size and professional to take on uh, the contracting of welfare services. Um, You might also expect it would require a readjustment of state-society relations and people to behave a bit differently, more actively, ready to volunteer, ready to participate in community fairs, given that quite a bit of the contracting of welfare services is taking place at the community level. Um, We would also expect an authoritarian regime to be concerned about issues of stability. how how are they going to ensure stability? Because, of course, the dilemma they have is that how are they going to develop a politically safe, professional, acceptable field of NGOs able to operate in in, in welfare services, whilst keeping out those groups that might be seen to potentially threaten the regime or advocate rights or um, criticise government policy. How is it going to balance these risks? And so we would expect an authoritarian regime to try to put in place ways to perhaps control or limit the scope of NGOs um, in different ways and perhaps um, minimise the influence of external actors as well. Um, We would also expect in a an authoritarian regime because of the problems they may have with what is called the information deficit, because there are not competitive party elections, because there's constrained civil society, controls over the media, how do they keep their pulse in society? How do they know about the problems that are emerging? This is very often a problem for authoritarian regimes. So we would expect to find an authoritarian regime looking for ways in which it can address this information deficit in society and perhaps trying to do this also through welfare contracting. And because again of the constraints of civil society and government controlled media, we can expect too there may be issues around accountability that are specific to an authoritarian regime. So how then does this begin to play out in China? Um, In China, China has now been has extended um, the has ruled out contracting since two thousand and thirteen across the country so it 's got you know some experience behind it but um, in liberal democratic regimes there are over three or four decades now of experience with this, and they have already encountered various issues in implementing the contracting of welfare services to NGOs and what we found in our research in fact is that China also shares many of these uh, common experiences so for example in liberal democratic regimes with several decades of experience of contracting we see that there there have been issues around the crowding out of um, small organizations as governments come to prefer large organisations with scale that can apply for contracts and that are actually better placed to apply for contracts because they have the appropriate staff in place, they have sufficient resources and so on. We already see signs of this emerging uh, in China, the advantages of scale and the crowding out of um, smaller organisations. There are issues too around the cherry picking of clients. This has been noted a lot in the literature on the US and Europe and New Zealand, and we see signs of this too occurring in China as well. Um, In the liberal democratic regimes, we've also seen issues of accountability. And in particular, whether we're talking about uh, the voluntary sector in the UK or international NGOs, what is very often the case is that you do not get uh, accountability downwards to the users of organizations. This is the this tendency for organizations to gear their accountability upwards to the people that are um, providing them with funds. And we see the same thing happening in China too. So there are accountability issues, but I will come back to this because this does look also rather different in the authoritarian regime. Uh, we see NGOs becoming more competitive with each other, NGOs in China and also in other countries lament the increased administrative burden there is upon them that in having um, to uh, report for the contracts for which they're responsible and so on. And if their NGOs become dependent on government then of course there is a risk to NGOs of losing some of their autonomy and this is a lament in liberal democratic regimes and also in authoritarian regimes like China. Uh, Then there's the issue of the short-termism of the contracts in terms not only of employment but also of welfare which raise issues around the morale of the staff, precarity, about the sustainability of uh, social services and so on. So those are some of the common problems we have found both in authoritarian and in liberal democratic regimes that are not necessarily specific to China, but we find elsewhere as well. But I would say there are also some key differences that we have emerged in our research um, in China, which we think are related to authoritarianism. And there are sort of four points I would make here. One is around the redistribution of tasks, power, and interest between community officials and new development actors, such as um, social workers and um, NGOs. Uh, Second is the need to minimize the threat to the regime. The third key difference is around, again, addressing this information Deposit issue, and in particular, the insertion of party cells into NGOs. And we'll talk about that a bit as well. And finally, um, the effects of constrained civil societies and government media on um, issues of accountability and the articulation of interests by minority groups. So I think there are four key differences in experiences of China in contracting um, welfare services to NGOs that I think are related to the nature of the regime, that are related to authoritarianism. So if we go back to the first one, the contracting of uh, welfare services to NGOs it's partly about public sector reform, it's partly about uh, welfare reform and it's also about control of civil society. That's three of the rationales for welfare contracting. But this also involves, in terms of public sector reform, transferring government tasks to society, to social forces, to NGOs, to social workers. So this redistribution of task powers and interests is never automatic or easy. It's also about power. It's about interpretations of institutional boundaries. And it involves debates about who is responsible for what who should be, whose task is it to do X, Y, and Z? And this we have already seen in our research, and one of our presenters will be talking in far greater detail about this in the research, of, uh, Dr. Le, uh, in his research on how this has lead, led to tensions sometimes between community officials and social workers and NGOs, where the community officials understand transferring tasks as sometimes beyond the scope of social work which for for those who are doing uh, social work social services means that the amount of time they have then available to devote to what they see as what they should be doing is reduced by this requirement that they also take on other types of administrative tasks this is this is a the, the issue here is about you know who has authority, who should do what, who, who should be responsible for what, and who bears the risks. Mm-hmm. The second area where I think it, it matters if if the regime is authoritarian or not is that an authoritarian regime, for the reasons I raised. Um, before around some of the challenges it it faces, like succession legitimacy, is con- much more concerned, or is very concerned, about stability of the regime and will try to minimize threats to that regime. So we see in China, and this is the case in Russia too actually, that uh, we see the government um, very positively encouraging mm-hmm. NGOs to contract welfare services, but encouraging certain types of NGOs, so certain categories of NGOs. And there's a list of these categories that you can see. And what they are to do is to provide services. And what they are not to do is talk too much about rights or advocacy. And this is conveyed, this may be conveyed informally in discussions and sometimes may appear in contracts, in clauses that um, suggest that they should steer away from that kind of work. Another way of trying to manage this from the perspective of an authoritarian state is to put in place, uh, for example, consortium-type organizations, which you will also find in liberal democratic regimes. Quite often, but not always, but quite often, these are the Chinese mass organizations, like the Women's Federation, like the Trade Union hub organizations such as what they're called uh, in China hub organizations and these organizations will have control over who gets the contracts and so they can be sure that politically safe uh, organization and competent and professional services um, get access to uh, the contracts Uh, win the contracts and they will sometimes know these organisations, they know that they they have good relations with them, so that introduces another element around having good relations with the government. And I think another way in which we see this attempt to stabilise the regime, to reduce the risk of what encouraging NGOs might mean for the stability of the regime, by inserting party cells into NGOs. Now, it is nothing new that um, NGOs have to set up party cells within their organizations. That is not new. That was already the case in the Hu Wen era. But this has intensified, as we know, in the Xi Jinping era. And um, this is important because, um, for example, in 2016, the military, Ministry of Civil Affairs issued a notice which said that actually NGOs have to engage in party building, and party building should be in their charter, and that they should uh, consult party members around the activities of NGOs, the budget, where they're getting their money from, how they're making decisions. Now you could argue, and this was indeed the case in several of the Um, NGOs that we talked to that really this really wasn't terribly important it's easy we just set up a party and it doesn't matter and that's done and dusted. However I think what we should note that when you've set up this you've set up an institutional lever which can be operated when it needs to be and I think that is the key issue that we have to bear in mind that if the state wants to pull that lever of the NGO Um, of the party cells in the NGOs, it is there available to do so. Um, So just continuing with the the party uh, cells that are set up in NGOs, I think these also at the same time have an important function for an authoritarian state in being a source of information about what is happening at the very lowest level in society so that the government can understand the problems that are arising, some of the difficulties, some of the risks, some of the problem groups, that issues that will need to be addressed. So it also serves a function of feedback to uh, higher levels, which is always an issue in authoritarian regime. And finally, on the terms of some of the key differences, Um, because in an authoritarian regime like China, you have a constrained civil society, you have government-controlled media, you have issues of accountability. Now, as I said, those issues of accountability are also a problem also in liberal democratic regimes as well, but because the civil society is constrained, media is constrained, um, it's much harder for the government and authority authoritarian government to keep its pulse on society, because these issues are not being um, exposed, um, they're not being raised, and so it makes accountability uh, much harder. And also in terms of the, the contracting system, how are you going to get feedback on how well the contracting system as a whole is uh, proceeding if you haven't got a well-established feedback mechanisms within that system and you also don't have, for example, more independent press that could expose some of these issues. Uh, It also raises issues around how are you getting marginalized voices heard who also have needs in terms of welfare and we know that in the contracting system in China there are uh, some um, clauses in a contract that might enable um, NGOs, for example, to um, put forward new needs in society, which is very important in a rapidly developing society uh, economy like China. But um, how are you going to get those voices heard when that is, is quite it's discretionary? It's not well funded and the accountability mechanisms also affect that. So to finish off, I want to um, make some points about why this matters, what are the implications of this and I would suggest that the regime type does matter for how contracting of welfare services to NGOs unfolds and it matters in terms of both the contract, in terms of the contracts, in terms of social policy and in terms of the development of the NGO sector. What does it imply for the landscape of NGOs and how that is being developed? Because in some ways it is a fallacy to think that you can have only service-oriented NGOs that do not engage with policy issues, do not engage with advocacy, do not perhaps raise issues around rights. The two are very difficult in practice to separate out uh, in a neat and tidy way. And it seems, from what we're seeing, that the, the government is looking for um, the development of an NGO sector that obviously is politically safe, that is focused on services uh, or services rather than on rights or policy advocacy and so on. This is not to say that NGOs are not doing advocacy work or not raising rights issues um, within the system as well. I mean, there are ways around things as well. But overall, this is a general tendency um, in the development of NGOs that I, uh, we think that the government is, mm-hmm. is seeking. And there, um, we, on the one hand, we have, we, people we've talked to in China, we have seen some are very optimistic and think, oh, this will actually lead to a much more... Um, diverse, much more articulate civil society. It's a really good thing. Other people are much more pessimistic about this and think this is actually a new way of subtly controlling NGOs. So two um, last points on the social policy. I think this matters because um, in terms of the um, development of social work, what will be the content of of social work, what will be the principles and values that are followed and what are the implications for the quality and sustainability of services and social work in China and how can you address the needs of marginalized people and just the last point it also potentially affects the whole credibility of the contracting system if you don't have good accountability mechanisms and organizations for example are feeling that well you need good government relations that there are similar uh, phenomena in other countries too in liberal democratic regimes along that line but if you don't have uh, channels through which that can be exposed and debated and discussed then I I think it Uh, raises questions about how successful the contracting system can be in terms of drawing in um, NGOs to provide welfare services. So thank you very much and I'll be very interested to have questions from you. Thank you Jude. Um, So
0: I will be uh, gathering questions if you want to use the raise hand function um, or you can pose questions in the chat and I will be posing them as well. Um, Thank you. We have a question from uh, Chen Chang who is um, asking why the Chinese government contracts, uh, it's a function to NGOs, why not the welfare work itself if it wants to reduce risks
1: or maintain stability? Um, I'm not quite sure I got the question actually. It is by both welfare and NGOs. Why does the government
0: contract its functions to NGOs? Why not uh, do the work
1: itself if it wants to Do the work itself? Um, Well, the justification for that is that, um, first of all, the government and local officials do not feel they've got the capacity to do that in terms of staff and in terms of their knowledge. Um, of social policy and social work, social policy is a is a relatively new field in uh, in China, so they do not feel that they ha- necessarily have the skills and expertise to address some of those issues and the added to that is that they may not feel they ne- have necessarily all the knowledge about what um, services should be provided. So the argument would then be that the NGOs have some sort of comparative advantage, and this is actually stated in um, policies issued by uh, the Chinese government, that they have certain advantages in expertise and their knowledge of the grassroots. That would be beneficial to the government. Also, um, we would say that the contracting is part of a broader public sector reform, a broader welfare reform, that is drawing on new public management type ways of reforming the state, which are about contracting out, uh, streamlining the state, uh, privatization and so on. Thank you Jude.
0: Um, Here we have a question from uh, Hue Li. Um, well, thanks you for the presentation. Can you elaborate more on the information deficit point? It seems that by contracting out, the government is setting up um, is setting up a new channel for NGOs to influence policy. However, if only good behaving NGOs can receive contracts and channel information, then the information that the government collects is biased.
1: Yes, I mean that that that's a very good point um, indeed. So. It's, it's an additional way, it's not the only way in which the Chinese government tries to understand better what is happening at the grassroots. It's not, um, contracting is an additional mechanism through which you can do it, because we already have the petitioning system, you have polls and opinion polls, already various mechanisms in place already. And by having the party sell, within the organisation, that is also a very effective way of getting right into the heart of where the problems are to find out where what are the problems, what needs to be done, because we need to do something about that as a government to retain our legitimacy as well and to, to prevent social unrest or social protest or social alienation and so on. So, um, it is. It you're right to say that, well, if only social, if politically acceptable organisations get the contracts, there will be a bias and there will be voices that are missed, which is one of the things that we have found in research around marginalised voices and like migrant workers, for example, or people living with HIV AIDS whose voices are not so well heard through this contracting process because of the services that are being contracted and the kind of organizations that have been drawn into um, contracting.
0: Thank you. Um, we have a question from Kes Akhtar. In regards to accountability and given the level of success on the surface, do you feel China is still able to hold accountability in unorthodox manners while still upholding its
1: own values? Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, I don't, I don't think the accountability structures are well institutionalized um, in China. And Professor Xiang, uh, Zhang uh, Xian Yuan Shang knows a lot about that, as does Professor Karen Fisher, who are also here for their their work, extensive work on accountability um, of NGOs um, in China. So um, I, I, I think, it, you know, it is a problem. And one of the problems as well is, is around, because of constrained civil society and controls of the media, much fewer opportunities to expose issues of accountability.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, we have a, a question from Susie Jolly. I, I'm, do you, would you like to ask the question yourself, Susie?
1: Um, I'll unmute you. Hi. Yes. Thanks for that hugely insightful summary. I just wanted to ask: in the three sectors you looked at—the disability, um, HIV, and um, the yeah—and the other sector—did you find major differences in the ways they experienced contracting, or in what people thought about the contracting system? Right. Yes. Um, we. We did find some some differences. We haven't done a full analysis of that yet, but we are on the way to doing that. I mean, certainly the system was quite different um, for people living with HIV-AIDS, where a lot of the contracts are channeled through the um, CDC's um, disease control um, centers, rather than through Uh, for example, local government departments or mass organisations. And some of the reasons for that were to do with the perception that well local government officials officials are very, very reluctant uh, to engage with the issues around people living with HIV AIDS and for, for a lot of these NGOs it's been quite difficult for them to register. Not all, I mean some have registered as Uh, under the Ministry of Civil Affairs but but very difficult and it also varies according to the location.
0: Okay, I will unmute uh, Karen Fisher. Yes, thank you.
1: Thanks Jude. Um, So you you mentioned about um, NGOs being constrained in their uh, capacity for advocacy and I, I I wanted to draw attention to how liberal democratic regimes also have what, in Australia, we call gagging orders. Yeah. Uh, constrained similarly. Perhaps, could you tell us how you think the NGOs and uh, Chinese government react differently to these gagging orders, or is it similar? Well, you're right, I mean, in the UK too, there are also gagging, gagging clauses in the uh, contracts uh, with voluntary sector organisations as well. And, the, and they have reacted. And they have reacted through umbrella organisations which represent the sectoral interests of voluntary sector groups. I mean, voluntary sector groups is N- NGOs. Um, and I think that's one key difference in that the NGOs in China don't have really... An, an, umbrella organization that speaks for them, that it, it mediates between the government and NGOs and um, could argue about this. So for example in the UK the national cancer voluntary organizations and other groups you know came together and have made very um, you know, strong complaint about that and in fact in the 1997, this is before the gagging clauses came in, but when they were um, discussing with the government about the idea of the con- compact that is working with closely with the lo- local governments provide services they made very sure that they had a clause in those contracts saying that they had the right to criticize government policy. Now since then with changes of government we've seen the insertion of gagging clauses as well It's so a contradiction but there is um, mediating, several mediating umbrella organizations which speak on, on behalf of the NGOs and engo- negotiate with the government um, around these issues. And that is, at the moment, lacking in China. And al- although there are different experiences in the location, we've seen, for example, um, some NGOs we talked to have saying, well, they're only allowed to do, actually apply for contracts in the community where they are based but we have also heard from others that they've been able to actually apply for contracts in several communities, so it does vary a lot. But in the sense that you keep NGOs confined to certain locations, it also stops them being able to form uh, broader sectoral relations.
0: Thank you, Jude. We have a question from Gosha Jackimo that is asking if you would mind commenting on the impact of the Charity Law of 2016 and the Overseas NGO Law on the NGO sectors that we've uh, researched and what trends have uh, the reforms driven so far? Are there any differences between the sectors?
1: Yes, um, so those two laws are very um, important. I mean the Charity Law because it seemed to make uh, more possible uh, the the ability for NGOs to raise funds independently, but certainly when we talk to uh, numerous NGOs, um, they express the difficulty of actually raising money from uh, private sources and some of that is to do with the trust of the public in NGOs Um, and some of it is to do with the nature of the the clientele that the NGO is um, serving. So, for example, with groups um, of people living with HIV AIDS, uh, I remember one interview, or a couple of interviews actually, where people said it was was actually difficult to raise money through the corporate sector because of the stigmatized stigmatized stigmas against uh, people living with HIV AIDS. Um, In terms of the 2016 overseas NGO law, this is very important and should be understood not, not as a separate law around um, con, um, requiring um, overseas NGOs to, for example, register the public security and control their spending activities um, within China, but it also has to be seen in relation to the um, national rolling out of contracting in China. So, I think what we can take from that is that um, part of the strategy of contracting welfare uh, services to NGOs and providing government money to do so has been to wean organisations off external money. And this has been institutionalised also through the passing of the overseas NGOs law. I think it was, it's not the only reason for the passing of that law, but I think it is closely connected to it so that really now NGOs have to look mainly to the government for their sources of money. I mean, there are other options like crowdfunding or getting money from corporate organizations or setting up your own side businesses and so on. But government has now become the chief source of uh, funding for many, for many NGO- NGOs in China. We have a couple
0: more minutes and a number of questions here, so I'm gonna have to uh, apologize for not being able to cover all of them, but um, I'm gonna, um, there's a questions on accountability that are in line with the previous question, but I think I'm gonna go directly to Sophia Woodman's question that is asking about the different priorities of local and central states, as is also related to the issue of, of authoritarianism and how it plays out in contracting of services. Is there variation among local local governments in the practices that we've observed in the field work?
1: Yes, there is variation. And um, again, this is something we are going to analyze and crystallize uh, more in, in the next few months. But um, there is variation in terms of the uh, ways of contracting and the models of contracting that are used in uh, different uh, parts of the country in perhaps the emphasis they give to certain services over others because they, local governments do have scope to try and ad, uh, adapt uh, the services they're providing to the needs of the local environment within a, within a very broad uh, framework of what's possible. Um, so there are important variations and I think one thing that was really stood out was one of our cases was looking at um, a city that um, actually did not have many um, NGOs readily available to provide services and so that really presented that uh, city government with a problem. Where were they going to get these service providers from? There were some, but there was certainly not enough to do what the government wanted to do in terms of devolving services provision um, to social forces. Um, And My colleague Dr Chu will be talking uh, over the next few days, yeah. <laughs> about uh, in particular about this case, which, and I'll just say a few words about it, where the government officials were, as, as Dr. Chiu will say, very entrepreneurial in how they approach this problem. And what I think it means for any city where they don't, do not have a readily available um, field of of NGOs that can take on the services, means that they will have to grow them in some way, incentivize them to emerge. And sometimes that, of course, is going to mean the government is going to set up its own NGOs. And there are many different ways of looking at this. I mean, because the government sets them up, are they not really NGOs? Or could it be that over time they will actually become more independent and um, than they were in the beginning and you know, we have seen that in any case with other NGOs in China that started off life as, um, as set up by government officials and and then fled, became, grew into something quite different but not all, that's not always the case. So I think this is very interesting, it's the level and depth of existing um, NGO sectors or civil society in different places has implications for the contracting process.
0: Well, thank you very much, Jude. And thank you uh, all for attending. Um, we have to finish now because in, we have a, a gap of 50 minutes until the next session. Um, I think the the Zoom will close because of security issues. So um, you have to re-enter the next uh, session with the link that you've been sent. If there's any issues, please email us. Uh, but I hope that you all have the link to the next session um, and see you in a... a 10 minutes, yes. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you very much, June.
1: Thanks, (laughs) everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for wonderful questions. Thank you.